Hey, and thanks for taking the time to listen with us here at Gospel Way as we seek to find rest in Christ. Please know that this is supplemental and does not replace your local church or the pastor that God has given to shepherd your soul. But it is our prayer that God will use these resources to bless you and point you to Jesus. At Romans chapter 12 and verse number 3. What I do want to do, I do want to go ahead and read verses 1 through verse number 8 so we can get a grasp of what Paul is saying in verse number 3. Because without the context of those verses, we can misapply what Paul's saying. And typically that's what we have a habit of doing is misapplying what Paul says because we don't look at what he says in the context of what he says. Um, I think it was said earlier this week that we have a habit in, in many, many, many churches and even in our own lives to where we decide to apply Scripture to our life instead of applying our life to the Scripture. We look at the Scripture in light of our circumstances and in light of our life instead of looking at our life through the lens of Scripture. Um, And we forget that Paul wrote this to an actual group of people. It's applicable to us, but he wrote it to a group of people. He didn't, when he was writing to Timothy, he didn't stop midway through and said, don't worry about the rest of it, it's for somebody else. All these different books were written to a specific group of people with specific issues. But we've got a Bible that's inspired and speaks to us in our day and our issues as well. And that's what we'll see here in verse number 3. But verse number 1, Paul starts out verse number 12. Again, after coming out of verse number or chapter number 11. And uh, one of the things I read while I was studying this is Kent Hughes said that this section of scripture is a profound we have a profound theology that paul gives us chapters 1 through chapter 11 at the end of chapter number 11 verse number 33 through 36 he said we have a a profound theology that produces a profound doxology or profound worship verses number chapter number 12 verses 1 through 2 he said produces this profound theology and profound doxology produces a profound dedication And then in verse number three, he said that this profound dedication coupled with the theology and the doxology will produce in us a profound humility. And that's part of what we want to look at tonight is Paul's Paul's pointing us toward the humility that we'll have if we understand theology correctly. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, Whether prophecy, let us prophesy, according to the proportion of faith. Our ministry, let us wait on our ministering. Or ministry, let us wait on our ministering. Or he that teacheth on teaching. 
Or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. And if you saw some of what Paul was saying in the text, we can see some of these phrases being used again and again that help us understand what Paul is saying in verse number three. Paul talks about the grace that is given to him, and he talks about the grace that is given to others. He talks about the measure of faith in verse number three, and he's going to, he talks some about the measure of, or the proportion of faith that other people are given. And what Paul is speaking to specifically in this passage of Scripture is the gifts that God gives, which we'll be looking at as we follow in through the, the coming weeks. But these verses explain what Paul is saying. If we look at verses, especially verse number 4 through verse number 8, we can understand verses 1 and 2. Verse 3 kind of couples these together to, to give us a, a better understanding of how we ought to view these. But when Paul is talking in verse number 1, he's not, he's not talking about some kind of generic, some kind of mindless, some kind of mystery. He's speaking to these things, verses 4 through 8. And some, not something that God is hiding from us, but he's going to tell us that we're given a measure of faith to understand these things. But in verse number three specifically, Paul mentions three things that I want to cover. Number one, he mentions a grace that is given. Number two, he mentions a guidance that is given. And for alliteration's sake, number three, he mentions a grasp that is given or a discernment that was given. I did my best. I looked through every thesaurus I could find, but I could not find a G word for discernment other than grasp. That was the only one I could find. So that's what I wrote down. But if we want to understand it, Paul is really saying he's, we're given discernment. Um, grasp is kind of a failure of a word, but again, it was all G's. So first of all, though, Paul says that there is a grace that was given, and we can see that in the beginning of verse number three. He says, For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you. So Paul starts out, and he says, I know what I'm talking about, because there's been grace given to me to understand what I'm saying to you. And he clarifies that in verse number four, whenever he talks about ministering. But what Paul is saying is that this grace that is given to him has been given to every man. It's not excluding anybody. What Paul is saying to the church at Rome is that there is no member of the church at Rome who is excluded from the grace of God. There's no exceptions to those who have been given the grace of God. And we can understand this because of salvation. Any of us who have obtain salvation even us who have trusted christ have trusted christ by the grace of god that's what paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 he said that it was by grace through faith so that we could not boast in the works that we do and it would be off base for us to look at verses 1 and 2 as something that we have to do by ourselves because he says through the grace given unto me Paul clarifies where these works in verses 1 and 2, where this dedication in 1 and 2 is coming from, and it's coming from the same place that his salvation came from. It's coming from the grace of God. See, before Paul lists any of the gifts in verses 4 through verse number 8, 
He lays out the only reason that these gifts can come or that we can even understand them. And that reason is grace. It's not of us, but it's to God's glory alone. Not that we can say, I'm gifted in this area and lift ourselves up. And that's what Paul's speaking to. But he's saying, it came to you the same way your salvation came. Don't boast in what you have been gifted. If you've been gifted in, and, I, and we will cover these things, but if you've been gifted in teaching or preaching or leading, don't boast in that because that didn't come of you. If you've been gifted in service, in giving, in encouragement, don't boast in that because it was by grace that it came to you. In every, every experience and in every person's life, this was of grace. It came by no other way. And, and Paul, in essence, says the same thing to the church of Corinth when he says to them, don't look at me, don't look at Apollos, don't look at any of these other people, but look at God who gives the grace because it is to him that is due the glory. And I know I use two words I'm not supposed to use, but it is the grace of God that points us to the glory of God. If we understand this, we can understand that not only is it the grace that gives us these things, but if it's grace that gives us these things, then we are in constant need of that grace. And what Paul's attempting to do, even in a midst, uh, giving us this practical knowledge that we can understand, giving us these things to say, here's some, some ways that you can act. Here's some ways that you should see things played out into your life. He don't wants us to refocus on where it came from. So he's saying everybody's been given the same amount of grace, but because everybody's been given the same amount of grace, they're constantly in need of the same amount of grace. We don't ever get to a point in our life where we are arrived, where we don't need the grace of God anymore. We never get to that plateau to where we can say, well, they need the grace of God more than I do because I'm doing way better than they are because that's exactly what Paul's speaking to in this verse. He's speaking to understanding and being humbled by the grace of God. And he wants us to refocus. <laughs> Ironically, he's gotten two verses into his practical application. He's gotten two verses into saying, here's what you need to do. And he stops two verses in and says, just so you're not going to miss this, we need to refocus on where the crux of this is at. We need to refocus on where this is coming from. Just like he does in chapter number five going into chapter number six. He says, he talks about that superabounding grace that can cover any sin that comes up against it. And he gets over into verse number one and he says, should we continue in sin? That grace may abound? God forbid, because he knows that's where people's minds went. And if we are teaching the scriptures correctly, we are going to come to these kinds of thoughts. But that's why the scriptures constantly refocus our gaze back to grace. It refocuses our gaze back to Christ because we have a habit of getting our focus off of Christ and off of grace and on ourselves and on what we do instead of looking clearly and looking intently at the cross. So we have the grace that was given. So Paul starts out, he said, this is to every man, no exceptions. You all need it, and you all need to be refocused on it. But secondly, he says, not only was there grace given, but there's guidance given. 
And this is where Paul gets into the application of this grace. Paul says here in verse number three, he says to every man that is among you, and here's what, he's, here's what he wants them to remember. He says that he wants them to not think of himself more highly than he ought to think. And he couples that with saying, so we've got the negative but the positive, but to think soberly. So he says, I want you to step away. I want you to see that this is of grace. And I don't want any of you to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. And I've heard that text used many, many times. And, and to a point, there is an application to us not thinking more of ourselves than we ought to think. But in the context of what Paul is saying, he's speaking directly at the gifts that he's about to talk about. He's speaking directly to the service that we are giving back to God. And he says, in your service, I don't want you to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. When you see yourself, you see the works that God has given you to do. You see the gifts that God has given you. Don't start thinking about yourself more highly than you ought to. And the word that Paul uses here is, is kind of an, an ironic, I guess, play on words. He actually uses two words here and he couples them together. He uses a word that means to over. And then in the second part is a word to think. So basically what Paul's saying here, he says, don't let any of you overthink of himself. And that overthink is played out in a couple ways. I, I know I'm, I personally am, am probably a textbook overthinker. I will leave every single conversation that I have with any person and begin to analyze that conversation, figure out, where I said something wrong, how I said something wrong, what I should have said better, what they meant by what they said. I will spend sometimes days replaying a conversation in my head trying to figure out what I did wrong. I overthink things. That's, that's, Lindsay actually has bought me a t-shirt that says, hang on while I overthink this, because that's what I do. I overthink things. And this is basically what Paul's warning us against. He's saying, don't overthink yourself. Which, if we're honest, we all have a tendency to do. And again, Kent Hughes, in his commentary, said that this overthinking has a tendency to play out in two different ways. He said it plays out in self-elevation and in self-deprecation. So we all know and we all have probably been guilty of the times where we look at ourselves and we begin to elevate ourselves. We look around at other people and we think, well, I'm definitely doing better than they are. I'm a better speaker than they are. I'm a better singer than they are. I'm a better servant than they are. I'm a better encouragement than they are. Whatever it may be, we look at all these other people and we say, well, my gifts are better than their gifts. I'm doing better than they are. But in flip of that, we're also not to self-depreciate ourselves. We're not to look at it and say, well, you know, he's such a better servant than I am. I'm not even going to serve at all. Or what really comes into play sometimes with this is whenever you have the, the type of person, and again, I've been guilty of this myself, whenever you go to someone and you start to self-deprecate yourself to them because you know if you say, hey, I'm just really bad at this, they're going to look at you and say, no, you're not. You're good at that. So it builds you up and you can, you can play the victim. 
And that's what Paul's telling us not to do. It's those, those three aspects that he's saying, whenever you look at these gifts that I'm about to tell you about, don't begin to elevate yourself and to think that I am more gifted in whatever area than my brother. And don't begin to deprecate yourself and say that I am just not as gifted as somebody else. And we'll get into why he says all this. But in pointing us back to grace, what Paul is warning us against is getting to the point where we elevate ourselves and say, I don't need the grace of God anymore because I am so gifted to do the work of God. And on the flip side of that, we don't want to get to the point to where we are basically pushing away the grace of God and saying the grace of God isn't good enough for what I want to do, or the grace of God isn't good enough for why I in what manner I am serving, and I need somebody else to lift me up because the grace of God isn't enough to inflate my ego. And that's in essence what Paul is warning about when he says, I don't want you to overthink yourself. And that little portion of what he says points us back to what he began with. Because what the gospel does is the gospel literally overturns both of these things. Because we can see the grace of God when we see ourselves as we ought. We see the grace of God and we see the need for the grace of God in our life, the need for the grace of God and the gifts that we've been given. But we also see that the grace of God is sufficient in our life, that we've not all been gifted in the same way God doesn't expect the same things out of us because he's giving us the grace that we need for what he expects. He's given us the grace to fulfill the purpose that he's put into our life. And the one one thing that, that I found interesting in what Paul is getting ready to say is he couples this in verse number three. He says, not only do I not want you to think more of himself than he ought, or I don't want you to overthink yourself, but he says, I want you to think soberly. Basically, Paul is saying, I want you to have a sound mind. I want you to have sound judgment. He uses the same word here that he used in verse number two. Paul said in verse number two, be not conformed into the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What Paul is saying is this renewing of your mind, your your mind is being transformed by the word of God. Your mind is being transformed by the grace of God. The gospel is literally taking your mind and molding it into the way that it ought to be. And when this happens, you will be able to think soberly. You'll be able to think in the way that you're supposed to think. And if you look through... The, the places where this word soberly is used, where this, this sound mind is used, most of the time that we see this word being used in the New Testament, it's being used in speaking of a person who has, has a, had a demon cast out of them. If you remember the, uh, the man in Gadaria, Jesus comes, he's on the boat, he comes over. They said, basically the demons come up and say, what are you here to do with us? What have you to do with us? What do you, what do you want to do? Our time's not yet come. And he wants them to send them into the pigs. The pigs run off the cliff. We know the story. But it says that whenever the people of the town heard these things, because the ones who owned the pigs had run and told them all of what happened. So they come in and they see a man 
sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed and what? In his right mind. It's the same word that Paul uses. Paul's saying, I want you to have a right mind about these gifts. I want you to have a right mind about the grace of God. I want you to have a right mind about yourself. Paul is pointing us back to this renewing of our mind and what it's going to produce. Because without the renewing of our mind, we will, without any doubt, be back into a self-appraisal of ourselves, a lifting up of ourselves. We're going to be back into a deprecating of ourselves. That's where our mind goes. Our fallen mind is just that. It's fallen. It's depraved. It goes to all the wrong places unless it is being renewed by Christ. Matthew Henry put it this way. He said, we must not say, I am nothing. Therefore, I will sit and do nothing. But what we should do is say, I am nothing in myself so as to lay ourselves before the grace of God in Christ. In essence, what he's saying is Paul is not telling us that we should sit back and, and either try to do things that we haven't been gifted to do, try and accomplish things that we haven't been given to accomplish, try and promote our ministry or our, our Christianity in such a way that God has not gifted us to do. And then that's one of the things that becomes most damaging to a body of believers is when someone comes into somewhere with the idea that they need to lift up themselves, their ministry, their Christianity, instead of relying on the grace that they've been given and the gifting that they've been given. And the scriptures tell us in another place, and this, this may be a little bit off, off track, but the scriptures tell us in another place namely in Timothy and Titus, that the reason for that or the cause of that is that the callings ought to be from outside of us and not inside of us. When we're saved, it's, it's a calling that comes from outside of us. It's God calling to us to trust him. He's coming from the outside, not the inside. We're not running to God in ourselves because in ourselves we always are running away from God. We are sheep who just scatter all over the place. And in that same manner, as the calling of God comes from out of us, the service and the gifting of God is going to come from out of us. And it's the place of the corporate body around us to be able to help discern those gifts that we are given. I have have seen, and and not not to bash anybody or, or belittle anybody, But I've seen many people who have decided in their minds that God was calling them to do this or God was calling them to do that or they wanted to do this or they wanted to do that. And there either was not people around them to sit with them and say, let's let's sit down and see what God does. Let's let's discern the gifts that God has given you. Or they are not loving enough to do that with these people. And these people go out and they typically will ruin themselves and others. Because they are trying to lift up what they think God is doing in them. And the scriptures are going to be clear. And the scriptures are clear that just as these callings come from outside of us, 
there's nothing inside of us that ought to try and orchestrate any of these callings either. And that's another danger that we have when we that it's honestly that that's probably a fruit of that exalting ourselves, because we think that we are gifted in a certain area. So we say we're going to go after a certain thing when we've not been given that measure of faith. We've not been given that gift and we chase after those things and just damage stuff in the way. Um, it's like somebody who who knows how to prune a fruit tree. Versus somebody who knows how to cut a fruit tree, they may you may you may can run a skill or a chainsaw just as good as the next guy, but if you're not skilled in what to do, you're going to damage everything. Um, I remember and this is this is again probably a, a bad analogy, but I know when I was younger, one of my brothers he uh, he took a stick to a blackberry bush, and my grandfather at the time did not take too kindly to him taking a stick to the blackberry bush. It was because he didn't know what he was doing. He thought, well, I can swing a stick, and that bush looks like it needs to be swung at. So he goes after the bush, but all he did was damage, damage that blackberry bush. That's all that came out of that. And when we start to think in ourselves and try to accomplish things in ourselves outside of the grace of God, outside of the giftings of God, and outside of the corporate body of God, we're going to damage ourselves and damage other people. Because that's not how God designed things to be. And he speaks to that in these, in these coming verses, and we will cover those things. But not only does he give us the grace and he gives us this guidance on not to think more highly of ourselves, not to overthink ourselves, but he gives us a grasp or a discernment as well. And he says that towards the end of verse number three. He says, but thanks soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man a measure of faith. This is also a section that outside of the context of Scripture can be misapplied and ran with. I've, I've heard this section of Scripture used by multiple different preachers, and I use that term lightly, but multiple different preachers to say all kinds of different things. Uh, even, even some of the word of faith preachers like Kenneth Copeland and Jesse Duplantis will use this verse and say that each of us have been given a measure of faith. And if you don't have the faith to grow that faith, then you're never going to be healed and you're never going to gain financially. But if you have the faith to grow this measure of faith that God has given you, then you can be healed and you can grow financially. But again, that's not what Paul's talking about here. This measure of faith is literally a measure of discernment of gifts or a measure of gifting. And where does faith come from? Faith comes from the word of God. The faith doesn't come from us. The gifting's not coming from us. The grace isn't coming from us. So who is this text pointing us to but back to God? That's what Paul does. He takes all this and he makes sure we understand where it's coming from. But he says every one of us Again, he's leaving nobody out. He says, each of you have been given the grace of God. And not only have each of you been given the grace of God, but each of you have been given a measure of gifting, a measure of faith from God. It's not a discerning faith, or not a saving faith, but it's a discerning faith. It's the faith of gifting in us that God has given and God cultivates in us. Yes. An example of this that we can see in history that, that even in our present history we can understand and it's probably been used in multiple times, is Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards knew 
due to himself and due to those around him, that he was not a gifted speaker. He knew that he had the calling of God to speak, but like Moses, he knew that he wasn't a gifted speaker. So what Jonathan Edwards would do is whenever he did speak, whenever he did preach, whenever he did get a sermon, he would give it in a monotone voice, and he would, he would basically read his outline. Now, Jonathan Edwards was probably one of the greatest American theologians. The man's mind was brilliant in being able to put together things in Scripture. He he's, he's, he's had, had an amazing mind, but the speaking side of that wasn't, didn't, didn't quite level up. Honestly, whenever I was reading specifically for this, my mind went to Paul. Paul told the Corinthians, he said that he was rude in speech, but he was good in writing. Basically, he was saying, I'm not a good speaker, but I'm a good writer. And that was the same case with Jonathan Edwards. He, he was not a good speaker, but his writing made up for that because that's where he was gifted. And what he understood is that if he did not basically throw himself on the grace of God then there would be nothing that would come. He made statements himself saying that he did what he did because he did not want his inability in speaking to get in the way of the power of the gospel. He was quoted as saying that. He did what he did because he did not want to get in the way of what God was going to be doing. And God took that man and, and was able to light a fire in the northeastern part of the Americas. God used his inability because God had given him the ability that he did have. And he didn't try and promote himself or his ministry. He just did what he did with the gifts that he had been given. And God used those gifts And that's what Paul is saying here. We've been given a measure of faith. He uses the word dealt. Again, this this word takes us back to the Gospels. Whenever we see words like this, it's, it's like when Jesus was handing out the loaves and the fishes. It says that he broke and he dealt the loaves and the fishes. He wasn't, he wasn't hanging there and just throwing it out to everybody. But as they would come, he would specifically break off a portion and give them a portion of the loaves and the fishes. It was intentional. It was purposeful. And it was ordinary. It was nothing extraordinary. The miracle itself was extraordinary. We understand that. But the food itself, there was nothing out of the ordinary in the food that God was giving these people. And that's what Paul's saying to us. He said, we have been given or dealt every man the measure of faith. God divides out these gifts to everyone. Any child that he has, any person that is going to come to him, whether now, in the future, or even in the past, God has given them certain gifts to build up the church. And that's the other thing that we need to make sure that we keep in mind is these gifts are never about us. They're to glorify God. They're never to glorify ourselves. They're to glorify God. And God is glorified in the building of his church. Because people look at it and they don't look at a person. And that's, that's what we can have a tendency to do again. We, look, we may look at a church that is somewhere else in America or somewhere else overseas and think, well, that pastor has been able to grow that church and seen thousands of people saved. But who's getting the glory in that? 
When we look at these men and these ministries who, who are all the time saying, well, we had 50 saved here and 40 saved here and 30 saved here, who's getting the glory? Because it's not God. They, they, they may be, in, in a sense, they may be self-deprecating themselves and saying, well, we didn't do this. But on the other side of that, they're lifting themselves up and saying, well, we did do this. Where the heart of Paul and the heart of the apostles and the heart of men throughout history have been to know to that nobody knows who they are. Paul didn't want anybody to know who he was. He wanted people to know Christ. He said, I, I, he said, I don't want you to know anything about me. I want you to know Christ and him crucified. Even, even Timothy. We know about Timothy because we know about Paul. We know about Titus because we know about Paul. We know about Onesimus because we know about Paul. These men pastored huge churches, huge works. They were over great amounts of people. Do we know anything about them other than what's in Scripture? We don't because they don't care. We know about them because God chose to mention them. And that's it. But that's the way they would have wanted things. They would have wanted the glory to go back to Christ. And again, all of these gifts, that's what the purpose is. Without Paul's warning, without the understanding of the grace of God, without the understanding that God does gift us, every person, a measure of gifting, a measure of faith, our tendency is to think that our own self-interest is the chief end of man. We look at ourselves and say, well, I've got to make sure I climb this corporate ladder. I've got to make sure I get in this position in the church. I've got to make sure people know who I am. I've got to make sure my name is out there. I've got to make sure I'm on the marquee, whatever it may be. We think that this own self-interest is the chief end. That's what, that's what our purpose here is, is to be known by people. When Paul and the scriptures say the opposite, our purpose here is not to be known by anyone, right. but it's that Christ be known. Amen. It's that Christ be seen. Because the scriptures tell us that the chief end of man is to glorify God. That's where our focus ought to be. And Paul's purpose in this verse is to bring to us the understanding of this measure of faith so that we can have that profound humility that Ken Hughes talked about. That all of this theology, all of this worship, all of this commitment, all of this dedication be seen in our life as the grace that God has given us. It's not some extraordinary thing that's going to be played out in any of our lives. We, we have, we, and, and, and I know, even myself, will have a tendency to look at men like maybe Billy Graham or, or somebody who was used greatly of God and think, well, that's what I want to achieve. But anybody who's ever been used greatly of God never set out to achieve any of those things. And if we're really honest, a hundred years from now, are any of us... And none of us are going to remember Billy Graham. <laughs> none of us are going to remember Charles Spurgeon. None of us are going to remember any of these people. To us, even now, most of these people are names in the book. It's not, it's not that, that person. It's a name in a book. And we have a tendency, again, to, to lift up and promote even people who are dead by their name. People that we may have even known, but we lift up these people. And what we ought to be doing is pointing 
ourselves back to God. Amen. To view ourselves, to view others in the way that God views us. To view ourselves and to view others in the way that we ought. To, to be humble in our view of ourselves. Not to lift ourselves up in, into some extraordinary picture of what we think that we ought to be. But to see ourselves as an ordinary, purposeful, determined product of God. That was even what I think they spoke about at the ladies' meeting yesterday, that we are appointed to bear fruit. Our purpose is here to bear fruit. Not so that somebody looks at an apple tree or or a blueberry bush and thinks, well, what a mighty apple tree or what a mighty blueberry bush, but somebody who can enjoy the fruit that that tree or that bush is bearing because it's not coming from them anyway. We may sow, we may water, but God is the one who is going to give the increase, not only in the salvation of people's lives, but in the gifting of our own life. It's not our place to try to increase our own gifts, to try and and get into some type of discipline so that we are a better person in any way, but to put ourselves into Scripture, to put ourselves into Christ, and to allow Christ to bear that fruit in us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for the opportunity to be here tonight.